yeah, it's just a open discussion about, it was just a random topic that Marcel and I spoke about because I just realized that, well, amongst my friends, a lot of us studied mechanical engineering. There were obviously a lot of people that were invited to this as well, which have left engineering as well. So I think we mentioned Ronald, he's in computer science, uh, Bradley is in AI, Collins. Um, so there's just a few, not a few, but quite a lot of people which studied with us, which left the engineering industry. So obviously it's an open discussion to different points of view as to why that is. If there are, maybe we can find some similarities in our situation, we find common, common problems. We try also, the thing that Marcel and I are doing, we try also have a situation where we're not, I would say, really blaming government per se. Like obviously we do need to put government at the point in time or not at point in time, hold them sort of accountable and responsible for some of the actions that they do make. But at the same time, sort of try to look at, at driving solutions that an individual can take. So maybe there are engineers which feel hopeless and either they feel like, okay, after maybe listening to this, if it, not that it spreads or something like that, but if they feel like they listen to this, they feel comfortable to make a transition to another career, or maybe we have some things to say, well, maybe stick it out, you know. As I mentioned, we've got a couple of people. Katja is in basically data science. Marcel is programming. Brendan's finance. Matt himself is, what do you call it? What do you call robotics, eh? Is that the yeah, best way to do it? Base, yeah, I think, I think probably the best way to explain it would be visual perception and like yeah, basically robotics. Okay. And I'm in IT service management. So that's also, I think I didn't give a catch up. I think Marcel knows that, Kutch knows that. So I consult for an IT company. A lot of it is basically very much maintenance engineering, just on IT systems. We do quite a bit of coding. Obviously, uh, we develop apps on a platform called ServiceNow, but it's stuff like workflows, data management, not, I wouldn't say data mining per se, because everything is just done on ServiceNow but uh, problem solving and maintenance, maintenance of the system itself. So we found ourselves, I guess, in different industries. I think some of us have had situations where we worked in industry for a bit. Kacha, I know, maybe I think spent six months at Fosco. I had four years of being an engineer. Matt also basically worked at an engineering company. Same as Brendan. I think Marcel's the only one which went straight into what he's doing now after his master's. So I think there's just a broad perspective, a few points of view, different uh, situations and people that have some idea to talk about maybe if there is an issue as to why people need to leave what they studied or it's just the, the time that we're in. So I don't know who wants to start. I don't want to say I want to conclude per se, but maybe we just start yeah, at the top with Katja. You can maybe take us through your experience where you did work and maybe some of the reasons or some of the things that you thought contributed to your decision to leave the engineering space. And I think at any point in time, people can jump into sort of not correct, but maybe put their point of view, either agree with something, maybe disagree with the point, but obviously in a friendly manner. So I think Katja, you can take it away. Um, yeah. So basically with me, it's like one of the things that I realized out of varsity is that I like to code. So like Pythonista, I'm, I'm always like trying to learn new things in Python, right? So now after varsity, I had a job set at the, the mine, as you mentioned. And yeah, so the mine's pretty set in its way uh, in terms of what job performance on the type of work I want to do and the type of experiences I want wanted to get, it was not going to be possible there. So I try to find ways to incorporate that, but I only lost it like four months and then I got an offer to where I am now. So now I move from mining to the financial industry for the financial sector as a quantitative analyst and I get there and it's a lot of Python, a lot of data, and a lot of also interacting with the business. 
So, I mean, it taught me skills on where I need to, especially turning technical talk into more business talk. So explaining the technical work to the non-technical. So, yeah, it was quite interesting, but I got that job fulfillment there in terms of a code and basically got into that data science world, right? At the moment, I'm doing a course that the company sent me to for data science. I explore data science academy here in South Africa. Yeah, so I'm getting to, I'm also expanding my knowledge into a skill that I can transfer back. Let's say I want to get back into the engineering sector. I can transfer it there. I can transfer it into many other sectors. That's also another thing. I looked at prospects in the future. If I mean, I think the most, most dominant industry in South Africa in terms of engineering is the mining sector. I could be corrected, but I saw that long-term, me staying in this sector, I might be what we call, what I was calling furniture. So like, I'm just there and I know everything that goes around there, but that's the only place I can move between. So now coming out, I can always go back in. That's how I see it. I can always go back in with a diverse skill set on top of my engineering skill. That's the reasons, like the reasons I chose or I saw it fit to leave the industry. And if I like, Beyond just engineering, if I want to go into product management, if I want to go more into this, and I could also choose that part. I want to make sure that I have many options for me to go to choose between, especially when I want to settle. At this point now, I'm more interested in the data science and the data engineering aspects because that's such a gap in the, like, companies don't focus on the data engineering. They focus on, like, your data science. And then a lot of data scientists end up doing data engineering instead of the actual data science work of building models and, and all that, be cleaning data and transforming data um, so that we can be ready for them to actually go and build the models and build those machine learning products. So yeah, exploring data engineering at the moment, but we'll see where that takes me as well. It's quite interesting that you mentioned that because I think I saw it was on LinkedIn. They mentioned something about the fact that there's actually businesses are starting to see the need for data engineers because what you mentioned is true that there's data scientists which i never knew was there was a difference between the two data scientists which build the models like this and then you've got engineers which are supposed to make sure that the system is clean and you're getting clean data and you filter the data sort of automatically without having to have issues where the scientists are working on it so sorry that was just a weird thing i did see i just never knew there was a difference between the two sorry um just to add on that like for instance myself i spend a lot of time cleaning data just to make sure the data is in like a good format or a good good enough for us to use and to get the insights in so you end up realizing that there's like a gap here and that in like business needs to start thinking about how do you fill this gap here so that you can have a streamlined process so i think I think with me, it was quite weird because I actually ended up doing mechanical engineering undergrad. And then it happened right at the end of undergrad that they offered a postgrad in aeronautics. And so I went the aeronautics route. And because of that, I got the job that I had for four years in Centurion. I think, to be honest, I already started off with a different engineering approach to pretty much any other company. Because like you come in, in a normal company, you'll come in as like, a junior engineer and you'll slowly build your way up the ranks whereas because of the nature of that company it was quite small so you just end up getting thrown feet first into the deep end 
So I was exposed to some very, very cool, very big projects like right in the beginning. So my main, my main task there was pretty much to do store release simulations. So to just make sure that ordinances leave aircraft in a safe manner for the pilot and for the aircraft. And I think working for four years in that industry, just purely the defense industry, is just, yeah, I don't know. I think I started getting a bit over the fact that, you know, you, you're building a lot of things for clients that you don't really know, like where they're going to use it or what they're going to do and everything's so hush-hush. It's actually not very, like you have a very extensive CV, but you can't really put a lot of it on because a lot of it's confidential. I've done some stuff that's incredible, but I can't, you know, it's against, I'm not allowed to speak about it. But all I can say is that like, without having that broad, massive base, I would never have been exposed to the mechatronic side of engineering or the electronic side of engineering. And then from that, you know, this love for robotics and then coupled robotics, because it's so vast, it's so broad, like engineering, you can literally use it for anything. You know, you're like my master's topic is specified on agri-tech, but the actual principles that I'm employing for agri-tech are agnostic. So I could use them on any industry. I could do GPS denied in mining, GPS denied in space, GPS denied anywhere, or even just, it's just vision perception stuff. So I think the fact that the experience that I'm going to get in the future is so much more relevant for what we need to do now you know there's there's a few companies in the world or there's a few countries in the world that have big defense budgets and if you're not a citizen of that country they're not going to employ you they're not going to help you to or you're not going to be able to give them stuff unless you obviously an external contractor so how do i get a new job if if i'm doing defense in south africa but i want to go overseas or you know so moving into a civil uh, industry is a lot more open for everyone you can do a lot more you can go a lot more places and the projects are not so confidential so you can probably share some of it on social media and describe to future employers what you actually did and for me that's one of the main values of this whole thing the other the other main aspect of why it's so incredible to be moving into like this agri-tech field is purely because on one hand, you have the defense industry, which doesn't necessarily benefit the layman. It doesn't benefit the, you know, Joe Soap on the on the street. But if perhaps I could, you know, build something that makes food cheaper or makes food more efficient to produce, then the farmer will not only make more money, but he'll be producing more crops. And then you have that whole supply demand. So, you know, eventually cheap food will get much cheaper. So, I mean, it, it might be like a, an optimistic, naive view of the world, you know, that my little robots can help maybe put a dent in, in food production, but, you know, perhaps they can. There's also incredible applications for it in the space industry. And, you know, there's a company in Joburg that's actually looking at using robotics to form a multi-robot system to actually mine other planets. And I mean, like, there's not, what can you do? You can't do that with, um, you know, defense or bomb dropping knowledge. <laughs> so I think it was just an, it was just perfect timing for me. Like my company had shown me exactly where I want to go with my life. My boss was supportive. 
this opportunity to come study further also came up. So it's just, for me, it was like kind of a perfect storm. And I think if I hadn't done it now, I would have regretted it. Do you sort of feel a bit scared that you actually had to go back and study or like, obviously there's a, the one part of it where you said you're living off savings. So that might be like a bit hectic or you're trying to work on the side or like, how is that? How do you feel about that? And do you feel that, I think you've obviously said that there were opportunities more per se that you left obviously to go work or you left obviously the defense industry and stuff. But do you feel like engineering let you down in some sort of way that you had to go outside and then go to, let's say, study a master's and then, you know, sort of to change your life around? I don't, I don't necessarily think that engineering let me down. I think the fact that it's such an incredible look, I mean, I love engineering. I try to get every kid I meet to be an engineer purely because it opens your world. I mean, case in point, look at all these people here. Each of us are doing unique things and we basically did all the same degree. So it's like it opens up your world. I think, I think the fact that I have to, you know, per, you know, perhaps I don't even need to do a master's degree to be a robotics engineer. I'm just doing it purely because it's also what's nice is it's nice to punctuate your life with, you know, like I have this season of my life or this this part of my life, I was working in defense and punctuated now with a master's degree. It also, you know, it's probably a bit of a selfish reason, but it also adds a couple extra letters behind my name, um, might give me more credibility. It's very, it's very hard to find work if you can only present personal projects that actually, you know, like, sure, you've done all these things, but a company is more likely to hire someone that has a bit of a paper so perhaps that's, you know, perhaps that's the reason, like one of the reasons why they could have let us down. But then again, on the other hand, like my boss, for instance, um, he, you know, like he studied and he did everything. And he was one of the guys that if you have the knowledge, he doesn't care what degrees or whatever you have. So it also really depends on the person. But if the person doesn't know you, how do you get into the door without the qualifications? So I think especially for the defense industry industry in South Africa, it's very small. So if you don't have connections, how do you make it? So I think that's one of the reasons why I felt called to study further. But also the other reason is because what I'm trying to do is so different from what I've worked now for the four years, it doesn't make sense to try and knock my head against a brick wall for a couple of years while I try and get it done, you know, rather, rather, go ask professionals how it's done, learn from the best, and then, um, you know, go from there. But you, but okay, so when I said engineering per se, letting you down, maybe that was a wrong phrase, but do you think the industry let you down in some sort of sense that, or maybe, maybe let's not say the industry, where there's certain things that, like you, I think you have mentioned the fact, like the whole privacy thing, the way it's difficult for you to build a CD on confidential mm. information. So that also was part and parcel, I guess, of, the decision yeah Yeah. i think perhaps you know you look at you look at big companies i look i can only speak about the i can only speak about the industry that i worked in which was defense and composite manufacturing composite manufacturing was severely hit by COVID. there's no there's no doubt about it you can't you can't manufacture things if you can't go to the, the workshop so the way my company was structured is we were structured very towards manufacturing so we had a lot of downtime during the lockdown. And I think, I think to be honest, it, you know, you have the big companies like Danel and Erisud and then, and they also struggle. And yeah, I don't know, to be honest, 
I don't know. I can't really say much about the industry letting me down. I think I think it's purely just you know legacy stuff of you know companies not being fast enough to adapt to the change. I think with COVID, it taught us a lot about how having to be able to be remote and just if you structure your world around you know factory and automation and stuff, you're not going to you know you're not going to keep up if people aren't can't go there to run things. So I think there is definitely a shift, but I don't think it's something that people like the industry can't get to. It's just going to take some time. And I know that if I stay in the industry, I'm just going to end up stagnating. I think just purely because, you know, it's because we're in this teething, this transition phase, analysts talk about me moving from a industrial and information age now to a network age and I don't want to get caught back there. So I'd rather I'd rather take a step back so that I can move much more forward, I guess is what I'm saying. So yeah, I guess, yeah, there's nothing more to say there. No, I think it was quite important what you mentioned there was uh, stagnation. And I think maybe if I just jump in, because I think I honestly, I align a lot with Matt, but there are a lot of things that I feel would be common to all of us. I think one thing that you mentioned was also the, difficulty for a lot of companies to innovate especially well when the south african engineering industry or a lot of the engineering industries within south africa are, are sort of pushed towards manufacturing and mm-hmm. i think i was just very fortunate and lucky that i was sort of able to get out of engineering i think it was what in october 2019 and I literally have watched the whole pandemic happen and I was out of that situation where I don't think I had to feel the knock-on effects of, I guess, of, of what it had in engineering. So maybe something that we can obviously discuss later about maybe how the pandemic affected your decisions or if you were really knocked knocked by the whole COVID pandemic and maybe helping push you towards your decision. But yeah, my story, I think you guys obviously know, um, worked at Foscore, which is also mining. Katja, I know, was on the Palaboro side. Actually, <laughs> Katja is the reason I actually got a bursary because I met him at Res and I found out where he got a bursary and I applied. So I was at the asset plant and I did my three years there as a graduate engineer slash project engineer and um, shutdown coordinator. And to be honest with you, it was good. I look back at the memories that I did have within Fosco and I, and I realized that a lot of them are fond memories. And then I had a year or 11 months at AB InBev, which is obviously we used to be South African breweries. But I still remember the first part where obviously being at Fosco, I did feel that there was a lot of stagnation and obviously maybe Kacha can either confirm or deny what I, what I have to say. But a lot of the things that they did, they were sort of set in their old, old ways. It was the same for Enriches Bay, not only Fosco itself. And that's what I'm saying. When it came to engineering experience and stuff like that, despite all the the bad things people have to say about companies and stuff like that really taught us well. They've maybe three of the deep end a few times, but even the people that I spoke to at Mondi at South 32 across the road, like it, they also felt the same thing. Like they were young engineers. They wanted to go do a couple of things, but there was always that issue of one. Well, we've always done it this way. Two, it's maybe too high risk to try something different. And three, they just don't have the money to try anything innovative, to try anything new. So they just sort of keep it the old way. And if they want to try anything new, they'll rather invest money to bring in the Germans or the French or a lot of European engineers and um, what do you call it? Consultants at three times the cost 
um, and they'll bring those guys in. But you've got a lot of young guys which are saying like, hey, we've got ideas, like pick us. But there was that thing. I wouldn't say it was a, a lack of um, trust in us because they did give us, that's what I'm saying, they threw us in the deep end and trusted us on some dangerous projects, some equipment. Like there were some shutdowns I was running. It's 12 million rand. You know, you're running a shutdown for 12 million rand and you making the calls. But at the same time, though, when it came to certain things, I think it was just maybe a bit of, there was also a bit of politics, maybe I would say at FOSCO per se, where a person was just a bit too scared to make the wrong call or a risky call because it meant, hey, I, I don't have, I will not keep my job. So I got a bit frustrated, obviously. I got, I, that's what I'm saying. I got a lot of good experience. And even that experience itself helped me move towards SAB and AB InBev. But I felt that some of the, I guess, progression and the stuff that we wanted to suggest was obviously held back by money. And obviously, if someone sees, sees SAB or AB InBev, they think, wow, like, great, that they must be a lot more innovative that side. They have to put a lot more money in because it's the, you know, a company of that size is the biggest brewery in the world. And I went over there and I realized, like, <laughs> it's actually not the same thing. It's it's it's, I'm not, it's not the same thing. It's exactly the same thing, actually. A lot of decisions are influenced by money and I won't say because it's corporate. AB InBev is run by, I think, 3G Capital, which is an investment firm out of Brazil. So the owners of the brewery are actually investment bankers. And for them, they've got like ratios and, and you know, all these little things that they play on to find, to calculate the optimum return on investment and stuff like that. So your decision was never an engineering decision. It was always if it affected the shareholders, if it affected, you know, the how much you get in return for the production on the line and stuff like that. So I was also in manufacturing or more production there, the FMCG. But a lot of decisions were still sort of governed by money and the fact that they don't want to, I won't say they don't want to, but they they felt like they needed to go to go ask the Europeans. So they used to fly in a lot of Germans to come in again. They'll bring in someone to do plant walks and inspections from South America, because obviously AB InBev is the biggest brewery in the world. So they always trust those little experts here and there. And as I said, there were a lot of other issues that we had there because you sort of hit your head against people to say, we need to do one, two, three, four. But one, they've got their old ways of doing things and they don't want to change. Two, when they do try, let's say, try something brand new, it's, I wouldn't say completely chaotic. Like you have to give them the benefit of the doubt to say at least they're trusting someone young but at the same time you look at the person that they're trusting and it's not really because of their credentials or because they've got good ideas it's because they're their friends so also a lot more political environment there and eventually that got to a point where i was like well the engineering industry seems a lot slower than it needs to be it doesn't feel innovative like if they bring something there by the time they bring one of the new equipments to the factory line it's two years old because it took South Africa so such a long period of time to procure it and go through the right paperwork because no one wants to make the mistake or take the risk, which is valid. I understand that. But things just took forever to actually develop and evolve. And I think it was also just a period of time in my life where I think, as Matt says, they sort of different punctuations that you sort of need to put at the end of your life where I said, well, it's either I'm going to stay here and carry on or I'm going to try something different. And I'm still sort of young. And then obviously I met Imola and she was in South Africa for a period of four months. We dated, she had to go back to the Netherlands. And I started looking towards careers where I would be able to be mobile because we were trying to make the whole long distance thing work. I was literally, I resigned from my job. And two weeks later, I was just really fortunate to get a job. But I do not think I would have either been prepared to do that if let's say I was still, if the engineering industry, I would say, let's say was so innovative and stuff like that, that I'll be 
willing to jump ship. I do not think I would be willing to do that if I had already settled down and stuff like that, you know. I was at a position where I could say, well, I'm young enough. I haven't traveled the world. So let me go towards a company that lets me and gives me the opportunity to do that. And yeah, I think definitely one of the biggest aspects at the end of the day was quality of life. Same, obviously, Fosco manufacturing environment, as Matt says, downtime and stuff like that is huge. Not that we don't get downtime per se in the IT industry because servers go down, you know, routers go down, things just just things just happen at the end of the day. Someone's code breaks something. But there's definitely a different quality of life where when I go to work at eight, I'll finish at five. Unless obviously something out of the normal, like it's something just really abnormal happens that we end up working super late. And maybe that's just for me because I know Kutch has also been working <laughs> late and they interrupt him on his holidays and stuff like that. But the last, I think I've been there for a year and six months now. And it's probably the most amount of time that I've had to myself outside of work. Where when I was in Fosco and I was at AB InBev, I was the standby engineer for the whole plant. If anything happened in the packaging, it was me. So there was never anything like how they had it possible to be like, this week you're on standby. I was on standby basically every single day of the week, Monday to Sunday. So quality of life was not great for me in that industry, within that industry. So for me to move over into IT, um, definitely there was a lot of learning that had to be done. But because it's IT service management, there are a lot of maintenance engineering principles. And that's why... For me, I love the fact, I think Matt, Matt also mentioned that, I love the fact that I did engineering because I think engineering is a way of thinking, not specifically a discipline. And that has helped me obviously transition into a different industry where the situations and the way life, I, it just suits me per se, put it that way. And I've been able to use my engineering background because my boss, yes, the other guy that works with us as well, he's also an engineer, electrical engineer, but he obviously moved, moved into IT as well. So there's definitely something I think there is a beauty of studying engineering, but as I said, engineering is not really specifically a discipline, it's a way of thinking. And that has enabled me to move to something that suits my life a lot more. And I think that's probably gonna be a common thread with you guys. But I think also that push to leave was also due to, I feel, a lack of innovation within the industry. Yeah, if anyone else, between Brendan and Marcel, I don't know who wants to jump in, maybe Brendan wants to go. I can wait in a bit. I think the story that I had ties in with both what Matt and what you've said, Nana, is I started off with engineering and the, the first job I had was with in PowerGen. We were working on the Casile project, so super big project. The first time you're exposed to it, you are absolutely excited and thrilled to be a part of such a mega project and you think you're going to learn so much. And there is a very, very steep initial learning curve, but once you overcome that, it plateaued incredibly so and in that time then you start looking for for other opportunities other means to to grow and what i've found in bigger companies we weren't working directly with escom per se but working hand in hand with with escom is that in a lot of the bigger companies any kind of drive is so pushed to the senior guys and you find yourself being heavily robbed of opportunity, opportunities to learn, opportunities to, to grow, push yourself, learn what you're capable of as a, as a younger engineer with what you think at the time is a lot of theoretical knowledge. Essentially what I found from, from Varsity is there's such a drive on learning about the theory behind things. 
that a lot of the practical stuff you need to learn on the job that for a multitude of reasons you know just the the many many facets that you have to to learn from beyond just engineering the business side of things the interpersonal skills there's no nice way to say it, the politics behind all of it and um it was very eye opening but very quickly you also get to see that like you said nana having the the overseas guys get involved the company i worked with was a was an american company and any time there was any kind of design decision or um operational decisions it was never a case of for let's ask the guys that are in the field that are learning about this and that know the plant on an intimate level it's let's go ask the senior engineers in Kansas City or wherever it is and i found that very very frustrating however i did see that i liked the the plant side of things or so i thought i liked the the plant side of things but on a project that big everything gets really formalized so there were some problems that i hadn't run into that i think are more applicable to the global sense of like a plant and managing a plant and working on a plant so having moved from that i moved to a smaller plant in waste management but essentially the same thing a process stream where you burn stuff i mean that's that's half of what powergen is and worked in that industry and then i think that's when again hit with the the quality of life and seeing what some of the demands are of a smaller plant and sort of understanding that you're an engineer but you're also a manager you're also on times an artisan you're also on times flipping at ad- admin and all sorts of stuff and that sort of put a, a bit of a bitter taste in my mouth about plants and stuff and and seeing what what goes on there but for the the ultimate thing that was like the the what's it the straw on the camel's back was just the the quality of life because it was a, exactly like you say you're on call 7 days a week if something goes wrong you've got to jump in and answer which is i mean it's ultimately it's no matter your drive it's unhealthy one and it's just a little bit unfair so did that and then transition to abattoirs so poultry abattoirs and stuff and that was crazy interesting i think in a perfect world that's a, a mechanical engineer's dream job because all the machinery is purely mechanical i mean the most electrical thing is a motor on off kind of thing which is you know well within the capabilities of any mechanical engineer and that was pretty fantastic but by that point i'd sort of seen enough of the engineering industry especially within like a south african context and seeing what's expected of an engineer you're not always going to be rewarded for your your hard efforts the late nights you put in the thought that you put behind a product and that isn't seen from you know the anecdotal evidence that i've seen and experienced and also talking to some of my colleagues and friends that have met along the way is that reward for the drive isn't there no matter your your efforts and that was where i got really frustrated is you you're looking for opportunities to push yourself looking for ways to to grow it's a challenge of mind and you know that that really isn't there and then yeah being exposed to another industry has been very very rewarding and being able to do that and then looking back at where i am now and the growth that i've had in the last 6 months sort of seeing that a lot of this has built up to it 
you know, having to answer to your engineering manager or the project manager or whatever and explain certain financial things and payoffs and stuff ties in very much to what I do on a daily basis. And that, that analytical side of things, being able to, to look at things a certain way and not just think that this is a certain investment that, you know, it's a, it's a grudge purchase or this person's putting away money and he's not seeing the results of the dividends or the profits or the growth, but being able to explain to them in a more in-depth way and to think of it in a different fashion. Yeah, so, I mean, to some of my experience and, and why I moved away from the, the engineering field is that for me, it was the reward isn't there. No, I think there was another part that you mentioned, which I, <laughs> as soon as you said it, I also remember the fact that you are basically a Swiss army knife, where it's not bad to be multi-talented, but AV InBev, as I told you, investment bankers, they try to optimize every little thing where they have the minimal amount of staff, obviously, to get, they've obviously done their calculation to get some sort of, you know, um, yield versus how much they have to spend and stuff like that. And the fact that because they've stipulated the contract that this person won't get paid over time, they still have to get it right. And they obviously still get the benefit of everything running. And I literally had situations where I was HR because we have a plant of about 300 to 400 people. There's one HR person for the whole site. They basically got rid of the HR department and they shifted everything to managers and engineers. So I have to do stuff like, you know, weekly goal setting with my artisans and stuff like that. Like literally write it down every month, not weekly, monthly. You know, what are your goals? What have you done this month? This kind of stuff. And then the plant is still running. It's not like the plant, you know, stopped or anything like that. I have to still do that. You have to sort of make sure that they, obviously each person has to clean their workshop, obviously by themselves, but I have to be in charge of that. And it gets to a point where you realize that obviously you study engineering and there's interpersonal skills. And, and the thing is, I'm not a person which doesn't have interpersonal skills, but they get to a point where they sort of say, well, that is like a priority for this month, push that stuff, but then also keep the plant running. And you're like, well, where, where do you want me to actually put my focus in? And you end up, as I'm saying, yes, you get there at eight o'clock in the morning and or seven o'clock in the morning, because you know that you have to answer so many emails and prepare this much, doc, these many documents and find out why each machine went down and give answers and also find, make sure that you do each of your artisans' time and attendance. There are 14 of them. You know, you get to a point to say, when are you actually doing engineering work? So you have to come and do admin, do engineering, and then admin afterwards, where if you really want to do your job properly, you have to work from 7 until 10 or 11 at night. And then, you know, you still get paid for the same amount of time. You know, there's no extra leave days. If you do well, that's great for them. But if, if there's anything, like, they'll forget what it is that you've done well and it's always something else okay but yeah but hr this is you know you know this is actually a really important thing now because there is no hr department every person is hr within themselves oh yes okay fine you got the hr part wrong but why is the machine down for so it's for such a long period of time oh and then you must also plan this you must plan that and definitely as i say quality of life was just terrible i think it was better at fossil i can definitely say that as much as there's a lot of things that i maybe a lot of things that where i feel that they could be more innovative about but yeah i think you also mentioned the fact that it's an engineer's dream having something that's purely mechanical obviously mechanical engineers dream purely mechanical i was electrical i was instrumentation i was mechanical i was and i know nothing about electrical but you know you all of these other things and then i was hr and then i was also artisan because you're getting in there 12 o'clock at night you know jump holding either a torch for one of the artisans or you're holding something up and then you're also environment and safety because you must make sure like you know there's no leaks so you're doing five people's jobs at one time and it takes away from what it is that you are focused on interested in and you studied marcel 
Yes, where should I start my story? So my ambitions to study engineering were mostly based that I wanted to solve problems. And I had a great interest in science and mathematics. Actually, that was the first thing that I wanted to do is something in the science arena. But in the real world, you need to earn money. So I quickly changed that to, to ambitions regarding real life problems. Because if you solve real life problems, then you'll probably earn money. And that's where the engineering field lied. When I had to make a decision, I thought energy was going to be the biggest problem. And that still is the biggest problem. After some emails with uh, a lot of lecturers and a lot of people, I eventually uh, made the decision for mechanical engineering. And I must say mechanical engineering, especially if you go speak to a lot of people on what they studied and what the content thereof is, mechanical engineering definitely provides that, that broad base that gives you a lot of satisfaction to, to solve a broad amount of problems. Um, I guess uh, most of you can uh, agree on that matter. If I listen to all your stories, I can definitely see that uh, how that knowledge was applied. Definitely mechanical engineering does provide that. But I guess engineering in general provides the, the basis to, to solve any problems. Anyway, my, with my ambitions being energy, I thought the best trajectory would be then after your studies, then do your do your master's or postgraduate in something related to that field. So I did mine in renewable energy, more specific in concentrating solar power. And that was fantastic for someone that is that loves innovation, loves research. I really enjoyed doing my master's. It was a, a good time. Yeah, after that, it was uh, the point to start getting work. And that that wasn't uh, really that easy. Even stronger, it was probably six months I applied for. So for a whole year, I, I applied uh, for work. But that last six months, I, I definitely uh, went all in to, to get a job. Couldn't find a job. Eventually, I did find a, find a work in the, in the mining sector. But it was sort of contract-based or... Yeah, contract -based or part-time so you do you work per hour which was fine but with my ambitions being in in the energy or in the innovative side because like I said I for me it was all about problem solving and that was very important to me during my studies I thought also getting that knowledge uh, from a startup company would also be really really cool so after three weeks I think of working for this uh, this mining consulting company I eventually got contact with uh, a company in the Netherlands because after seeing that there weren't companies interested in my CV in South Africa, I eventually started sending out to countries within Africa as well as in Europe. And it's quite a lot. I think uh, in Africa, it was other countries were Zambia. And then in Europe, Netherlands, Germany, Denmark, Italy, Sweden, probably some others as well. But yeah. I sent uh, to a lot of uh, companies. So when that company contacted me, it was a company that's, uh, that wanted to try something out in terms of facilitating automation to engineering companies. And that sounded really interesting. Although it wasn't in energy, it was, it was something that they applied innovation on the engineering side. I uh, took the leap, uh, went to that startup company. And yeah, that company is called uh, Victor. They facilitate digitization of the engineering world. As you mentioned, Kaja, that you 
being a part of data science and data engineering, that's definitely a field that's going to grow in the future. And the company I'm working for, we facilitate that by building applications for whatever the case. It's usually the design processes that we facilitate uh, by digitizing it. We build applications around that. But it could be anything else for, from collecting data from sensors and and a combination of design data collection and and real life data collection, which we combine and do. There's a whole data structure behind that. Yeah, so that's basically how I ended up working for this company I'm working for now. It's really interesting. I studied mechanical engineering and this company I'm working for, the clients that we have are mostly into geotechnical, civil and offshore engineering related stuff. So it's entirely different from, from my studies. But because of that theoretical knowledge that you had during your studies, it doesn't take a lot of time or the learning curve isn't that great to understand what, how to apply that knowledge that you've learned during your studies. Starting off at, at that company, the, it was the most important part to be able to program really, really well, especially with Python. And although I did it with my, during my master's, it was sort of just to, to get my project done within master's. And that's where I learned quite a lot uh, working for my company is how to solve basically any problem using coding, mostly Python, but uh, other code when required as well. It's, it's very rewarding to, to, to be able to do that and to apply your knowledge on different fields because uh, the work that I'm specifically doing is, doing is I'm sort of, most of the time I'm coding, but I, because I'm the person between the application and and the, the expert, we do consulting sort of a basis. So they explain what they want to achieve and I need to interpret that into and translate that into code. So um, yeah, definitely. I s still have ambitions to to still apply my knowledge. And I think that's my frustration as well is that you will always reach a point in your career where you, where you think like, I know so much, but I'm not using all of that. And I also want to learn so much more. I constantly want to be in a position where I'm, where I'm forcing myself to, to learn something new. And luckily that is the case when working for different clients and different companies that are in different sectors. But with any company, you, you sort of grow into a certain niche and then gradually grow outwards. So the, the most companies that we now have are in the civil industry. And I, I would really uh, like the idea to, to grow that segment into the energy sector so that I can apply my knowledge, my expert knowledge that I, that I was taught to doing my master studies more broadly into that sector as well. So yeah, I think uh, that's m the biggest story. So in the intro, I was I was told that I was a Python developer, which I am, but I'm not outside the engineering sector. And I think if one says that you're outside the engineering sector, I think we we're living in in times where where everything is sort of blurred in, in lines. So that's why they call like certain careers you call data engineers. Like data is not like a generation ago. It wasn't. It wasn't considered engineering and finance is also going in in the engineering space it's engineering is basically figuring out problems solving problems so i won't ever step away from from that title engineer because i think it's all about 
as long as you've got a career that's about solving problems, I think you can call yourself in some way an engineer. It's probably not in the in the direction that you studied in. But then again, by studying mechanical engineering, what what part of the mechanical engineering are you going to talk about? Are you going to talk about the structural, the thermodynamics, fluid dynamics, project management? There's there's so many facets there. So if you if you follow the trajectory where you only only focused on that one part. Or you got to say, yeah, I, I moved away from engineering. I'm, I'm a fluid dynamics analyst now. I'm, I'm not an engineer anymore. Now, I, I don't believe that. As long as I believe that, that with the knowledge that I have, I can solve any problem, which is if you, we studied fundamentals in engineering, and I believe that from those fundamentals, you can really solve any problem. That's my belief that if there's any problem, I will be able to solve it. It just sometimes costs a lot of time and effort. And you can't solve all problems simultaneously. But I, I think, do you think we can solve any problem? You just have to pick the problem for yourself. So in terms of careers, if you need to find a find a work, that's a very difficult part because, especially getting into industry, like biggest company chooses, especially not in South Africa, you can pro- you could probably start something yourself, but then without any experience and without any networks. I think the, the, the biggest problem would be connections and networks. Because I think even without experience, you'll make uh, mistakes, but I think you'll be able to solve the problem. I think it's just the uh, resource and networks that, that hinder someone to start for him or herself. And that's why we all probably started with a job and still are in a job position. But I think I think that's the nicest thing that you eventually work yourself up to a point where you can do something that you yourself really like. And I think the best way to to be able to do that is to eventually work for yourself. Because I think in a job position, there's all, always going to be that part where you need to do something for someone else that they want and not what you want. If you like that, then it's obviously fun. And if you're in an industry where where it's so nice and the and the perks are are so good, then I guess you can stay in that position. But uh, yeah, if you really are keen on on going focused to that one position or the one thing you want to do, it's either by searching really hard for for that opportunity or finding a, a job opportunity where they give you that freedom, or you need to create that freedom yourself. So yeah, I think that's uh, quite a long story. That's that's my opinion on on this discussion of of leaving leaving engineering for for your for your job. I think um, I actually like the the thing that Marcel says about team where you're a problem solver. Engineers are problem solvers. Now, what I see in the industry I work in, a lot of my fellow quants are engineers, so chemical engineers, electrical, although there are some mathematicians, statisticians as well there, but you have a large number of engineers coming through to help solve those problems because of the global thinking that, that we have. So you could say maybe using your, your transitioning into other roles, using your engineering skills to transition into solving other types of problems because at the base, as Marcel put it, we are problem solvers. For me, like um, I'm in a space that I'm really interested in. Although I work for a big company that employs like 24,000 plus people, they they are going to be a, 
a lot of miscommunications and but that's the general nature of it all but in terms of the problem solving and the engineering i think yeah i don't ever go away from that so it's never i'll never stop having the nature of an engineer because i'm not working as what they call like maybe a traditional engineers just wanted to add that i think we've all obviously now shifting from engineering i think maybe uh, you know obviously we put the topic as engineers leaving you know or south african engineers leaving the industry but maybe it is actually a thing to say rather finding other industries to apply their knowledge to but in terms of we obviously all had to go through some sort of learning curve to move into the next industry maybe i would say maybe not matt because um, i think you studied something and maybe got on the job experience to do what it is that you're doing but how has that transition been has it been hectic or did you find actually that it's not too different to what you studied and um because of your engineering background it was actually quite easy maybe to transition into those other fields so we can start with brendan probably because i think for me it's still the most not most interesting per se but the fact that you in finance i'm just like okay fine like finance engineering like obviously we I think we've all worked with a finance department in our fields because, you know, money has to come from somewhere. But, you know, how has that transition been? Is, was the learning curve steep or do you feel like, okay, there are similarities between engineering and finance that have helped you maybe make the transition? I think it's a, for me and my personal case, there's two arguments to be made. First of all, growing from graduating and having to deal with like my own personal finances and there was a pretty steep learning curve. The first company I worked at two weeks in, we sat down, had the wonderful speech, you know, this is your provident fund. This is your medical aid. These are your benefits. This is what you're covered for. And there were a lot of big words thrown around and I was just too afraid, you know, to stick my hands up and say, well, what's in a retirement annuity or what's a provident fund? Why is there a difference? Why do I need both? And it didn't make a lot of sense to me. And that pushed me into learning a lot about, finances on my own learning about markets and tours and all sorts of technical finance things i think partly because i was trained as an engineer but i had that background and that support going into the new industry where where a lot of what i was working with i had those fundamentals and and for me the learning curve was more legislative a lot of the acts and uh, the fsca tax on but tax legislation there was a fairly steep learning curve with that. But again, I feel that because of the background as an engineer, it sets you up on a path where you're actually very capable of independent learning. Like Marcel said, we've, we've got these skills that we were taught and these fundamentals that essentially allow us to solve any problem. And what's definitely supported me is that critical thinking and being able to look at problems without the the emotional side of things in finance, you know, everyone cares a lot about their hard earned money, which is all fair and well, and you should care about it, but you also need someone who's not emotionally attached. And so on the one hand, I had all of that. And then within the company and the transition I made, I was very lucky. I mean, the first two months that you work there, you're, you're in class every day for the first half of your day. And then the second half you're out meeting clients or, you know, doing the, the behind the scenes stuff that you, you need to get done and looking at the the peers that i work with now and the the backgrounds they've 
had some of them are you know straight out of varsity so they're not necessarily the best comparator but there are some other engineers and people from just other industries getting into the the, the same industry and to see their learning curves i mean they're, they're clearly intelligent people they know what's going on but there are things that are more struggle i mean that's that's not to say you know i'm perfect or anything there's a lot of a lot of things that i've had to wrap my head around and put in extra hours but to to see a lot of the stuff you you kind of just get set up to to be able to to cope with it so for me i've had, it's it's just been a bit of a lucky break really but there has been a lot of a lot of support making the jump it's been pretty terrifying and you needed I, I had to have a pretty serious think about it and a sit down and just make sure and look at my personal affairs and make sure that you know I can handle this handle the learning curve building my own practice to get where I need to be but the the learning it's been manageable I think if if I read into the question well enough it's it hasn't been a case of oh no this is impossible I'm going from engineering to studying the art of you know, plate spinning or something. And there's like no, no correlation. There's, there's significant correlation. And I think that sets, sets us up the same way Marcel said. Studying engineering, it sets you up in so many aspects of your life that you can, as a quote unquote engineer in any industry. Matt, your side? I think, yeah, I mean, I, now that Marcel said it, it sounds very logical to say that you're not actually leaving the industry, but you're transitioning. Because I'm still going to go ahead and call myself a robotics engineer as soon as I qualify. That's going to be the first thing I call myself because it's going to be a mantle that I hold very proudly. I think that, yeah, I don't know. It's just the transition from, this is one of those cases where the transition between what I was doing, which was very like what I had studied um, in terms of aerodynamics, working out lift coefficients, working out drag, um, optimizing airframes and fuselages and all of that. It is very vastly different to what I was doing in my job. So this does require either a lot of extra hours or you can devote one year and you can do a master's degree. So it just, it, this is the path that I've chosen purely because it's the quickest path to get to where I want to go. Yeah, I like, I like to think that it is very relevant. Like Brendan was saying, you know, because or because I have you know dynamics knowledge of how wheels work and how gear systems work and how um, load pass and four bar mechanism um, four linkage mechanisms and all of that work you know I can build mechanical systems that can manipulate themselves or traverse terrain bipedal wheeled based systems quadrupeds you know have a basic understanding of all those linkages and all those mechanisms. Now the thing that I don't understand is the control because of the broad knowledge I have some idea of what a PID does and you know like that type of stuff but my master's is purely based in neural nets and I have no idea what neural net is so <laughs> I could spend a lot of time trying to learn neural nets and vision and image processing and all of that but yeah so I think once I can get all that done and figure out all the transposers and stuff then you know having everything that I've done before uh, in terms of study, in terms of work, you know, I'll be able to, it's going to make like a, what I like to call the trident of engineering, uh, mechanical, aero, and electrical, just one trident to solve as many problems as I can. 
and hopefully I can apply it to many more industries, you know, agri-tech just being the first, but hopefully space, hopefully mining. I think the transition, like the learning curve is a master's degree for this. I should say I I think it's it's definitely a better route to, to take because knowing the fundamentals and figuring it out yourself, time is the is a very important factor that needs to be taken into consideration. And I think spending time with with experts, whether it's a, doing a master or being in a specialist industry and working for a specialist company, definitely accelerates the the amount of knowledge you gain in the shortest period of time. But in that sense, though, do you feel like, or more particularly, Matt, if you could have transitioned, let's say, to an employer which teaches this or they do this and they sort of say, hey, come on as a junior and, you know, you'd learn all the stuff as you go along. Do you think that would be more beneficial or do you feel like in order to get to that point where they say, come on as a junior, you need your master's? Because I think like with Brendan, obviously for him, he found a job and then with that job, they let him train to do what he did. Marcel, yes, he did his master's, but I think for me, technically speaking, I feel like, okay, you can obviously go learn a few fundamentals here and there. But definitely the most amount of learning happens within the industry. But I feel like you need to make that segue into doing a master's first so that you can get yourself into the place where you can learn more from people within where it is that you want to go. I think it also comes, I think the situation I'm in comes down to the fact that the South African industry for robotics is only really getting off the ground now. Uh, You have a few companies in Neisner, you have, a few, you have a few companies in Cape Town, Neisner, and there's another one. And they all do drone-based type stuff. They all do, like some company is setting up airship delivery, some guy, you know. And I think, I mean, I interviewed for some of those jobs. I interviewed to try to do drone automation. But it comes down to the fact that, like, there's not much happening in terms of ground-based rovers or there's not much happening in terms of underwater stuff besides in the research fields um, at UCT. And I think WITS is doing a lot of machine learning and like experience-based learning AI development, but they're not working on physical robots. So, you know, I had a choice now. I could try, I could carry on with the drone industry and uh, work in the robotics visual perception on drones which probably would have been fine, probably would have been an interesting thing. But the thing with drones is that you have a lot of unique issues in terms of weight and battery management and endurance and all of that. And then ground rovers have a whole lot of different unique, like you're not restricted on weight, but if there's a small wall in front of you, your tickets, how do you get over a small wall? So I think the challenge is, not only are unique compared to having worked four years with drones, now I'm working with something that I haven't figured out yet. And then also just the fact that getting a master's degree, especially at our, you know, we have very good universities here. They all, you know, internationally accredited, whether that's just on paper or in practice. But the idea that I can now take the master's degree, you know, at least now, it's something marketable as opposed to saying, oh, I work with drones or, you know, I have this onboarding experience. A friend of mine always told me that, yeah, Matt, you can get anywhere you want to laugh with just experience as well. But like Marcel was saying, how many years experience do I need before 
I can get into the same position that a, that a one-year master's or one-and-a-half-year master's can get me. I don't want to have to dedicate five years to working in a company that might not go anywhere just purely so that I can do the job I actually want to do. And so it was just a trade-off. And then, like I said, you know, just opportunities, funding, the topic, the supervisor, literally everything fell into place in the worst year um, that I've had to live through. So, yeah, I just I grabbed it with both hands, and that's why I'm here. Uh, I think obviously, like you had mentioned, the fact that I think maybe it was something you had dabbled with and you obviously built up enough savings to enable you to do that. But I think obviously, not that masters is a privilege, but yes, it is a privilege, you know, for some people. Yeah. And it doesn't mean, that's why I was asking, okay, fine, if you could have got a job where they enabled you to yeah. do that, would you have opted for that or would you still have, would have thought? And as you mentioned, there may be a few things to say what made it easy was the fact that maybe robotics with an essay isn't um, at that level yet so for you you felt like well okay let me go do a master's to learn the best of what is available at the moment before i make that transition because on the other hand like let's say brendan doing going through the finance industry you know he's probably going to have to do cfa right um, to do your certified financial analyst and stuff like that so with that you don't need to go you know go you won't have to go study at bcom you know degree then do the honors then do a master's just to go do a cfa you can jump right in there because it's something that is sort of they they definitely have i guess enough knowledge for the person to say we can structure it and of course there are a few exams that you have to obviously write i can get three levels if i'm not mistaken whereas also Katja, like him going obviously to data science like what you learn within data science i think i guess is universal and even what you can share i guess if you've got a good repository compared to you say you've done personal projects but i think your personal projects will be limited by funds because obviously in robotics whereas let's say Katja's one like the scope is endless because he just has to have a repository get code yeah it's open source he can basically have a good example of what it is that he works on without having to let's say have studied a master's yeah but i think that also has to do with industry maturity like the financial industry in south africa is quite mature whereas the robotics in south africa is not mature or at least we're at the you know, we're at the cusp of, you know, something big, you know, there's a lot of technologies that we can implement from overseas, but there's not a lot of companies that want to do that. I think, you know, like in, I think in the States, they take John, like John Deere takes their tractors and they put an automation, like waypoint following GPS based system on there. Whereas a South African farmer, for instance, you know, they can just take, they can just hire more people. We, because of our unemployment, you know, they can hire, they don't need to solve the issue. Labor isn't super expensive in South Africa. Whereas like labor in Europe is enormously expensive. I remember going to Germany and a beer was 80 cents, but as soon as a waiter touches that beer, it becomes four euros. So like it just comes down to labor costs and just saving costs. And I think, to be honest, the something about farmers is they very, show me it works and I'll believe you. But if you don't have anything to show them that it works, then, you know, what are you selling? So I think the other aspect is the fact that I tried to get jobs. You know, you try to get jobs overseas. There's a lot of beautiful robotics companies that I've tried to apply at. And I've been on emails chatting with a lot of them. But then again, like it also comes down with the discrepancies between the education system and how degrees are structured here and how degrees are structured overseas and how they believe one thing 
like an image, but an image means one thing there and an image means one thing here. So in actual fact, like getting an MSC is a lot more like level pegging, you know, like that's something that they understand. It's an advanced degree. So hopefully one day it won't be a necessary thing, but I think for now, if I'm, if I'm not happy to invest in a couple of years experience, then a master's and MSc is a good, a good way to go. Now, to get back to, to the point of uh, either studying for something and getting the papers or getting experience, I think a generation ago it was the academic bureaucracy, if you can call it that, was, was still sky high. I think it, it, it sort of gets broken down in different industries. I see it with my company. Although a paper is still a prerequisite, they, they do go in the direction where they, they want to make tests. And if someone passes the test, then, then, you, then you definitely pass the, the requirements to, to be able to work for the company. And you see that, that with more of these, these major companies where they say, if you rather show me what you've done than the papers that you have. I think with the world shouting for, for go study and getting a degree, more people go do that. That brings the amount of uh, resources to industry higher. So I think it's, that's sort of a market uh, thing where, where it's all about supply and demand. Now, if the supply increases, but the demand stays the same, then it's going to be less valuable. And what they've realized is that papers do provide a certain form of, of value, but how can you distinguish even further? And I think that's where companies notice if someone that doesn't have a degree or didn't do all that academic, do their academic route, but they can provide the value to the company, then that would also be fine. Okay. It is unfortunately the case that, that the majority of companies are still very, let, let us call it academic, bureau, bureaucratic, where they, they still believe in the paper so heavily that they don't believe in the person. And I think that is changing as we, as we go on. But, do, but don't you think that leniency also depends on where you are applying for a job? So obviously for me, I consult, yes, we consult overseas, but it's a South African-based company. Whereas Matt was saying, if he wants to go work overseas, there definitely now becomes less of a issue where you say, well, what degree do you have? So as much as, yes, Marcel, you have a master's, remember, you've also got Dutch citizenship. So for you, like, you know, yes, you do have a master's and that helps. and You can pass a test, that helps. But I think one of the big factors is the fact that you've got, you know, a Dutch passport, which means that they don't have to pay you over when you're over 34 and a half thousand euros because you're a foreigner. You see, like with Matt, they need to highly motivate why they're bringing this foreigner into the country. And then they'll put a lot more paperwork on, or let's say red tape around the fact that, okay, now you must have a master's and because they need to go validate why they bring this foreigner into the country. Whereas if he found a South African-based country, company, maybe it would be easier for him to not have done the master's and if there was a lot of maturity within the robotics industry, you can say, okay, fine. I don't need to go do the master's. I'm South African. They know I've got a South African degree. I can go there and then maybe show my personal projects and stuff like that. I think the same thing with Brendan, you know, doing financial, um, you can do it with an essay, having an engineering degree. But having to go do that in America now also brings in a lot more red tape around the finance industry to say, well, where did you actually learn your finance knowledge from? Um, because you're not from our nation, you know. 
No, I totally agree. I totally agree. If you move a person from one country to the next, there's a, there's an organization that's in between that. We get to that word now, government. <laughs> I think government is the most bureaucratic entity of a society. And I can understand why government is so bureaucratic. They, they need to be, if you have so many people that you need to control or at least check, then it's much easier to document everything and then validate everything with that document. So if someone wants to cross the border, then they need to, they need the requirements that are on the paper. And it's easiest for a bureaucratic institution to, to validate their processes, their bureaucratic processes with another bureaucratic process. It's much harder to, to, uh, to validate yourself as a person if it's not on paper. I think uh, that also you're definitely going to see that even more in years to come. I've read some papers of this artificial intelligence that gets generated, the machine learning algorithms that are, that are applied. The data they collect are from, from document stuff. So these algorithms sort of react on, on what they were fed. And you see that they actually did, did this with a, a big institution. I think it was for tax. They applied a machine learning and they saw that the, this algorithm, a lot of the things that it did was very the same way that the existing process already did it. So that's basically when we talk about bureaucracy and, and we talk about papers and everything, it's, it's all about how can you put something valuable on paper? So, and that's where I think repositories have a, a big advantage for the future because then you can just say like, listen, I've built this. You can check that now. I've actually read something that they say in terms of the, the big tech world, the series of the future will be repositories. But it's obviously much harder for, for any technical field uh, where you need to show real life results. But so just in essence there, so Matt, the reason why you obviously maybe you'll have to go into a master's to move into this new industry is because the industry within South Africa itself is not mature. So you need to maybe find work outside of SA to make your transition to what it is that you want to do. And in order to do that, you need MSc because it's more recognized, right? I think... I think just coming back to the whole, it's, I think it's just a matter of time now, to be honest, because yes, I could keep, I could have kept chugging along the way at my job for the, the next four or five years, but I'd be getting that job experience and everything I wanted to actually be doing, I'd have to be doing after hours. So basically my quality of life or, you know, sure you're passionate about it, but still going, working an eight hour day and then working on personal projects for another four, four to six hours every day, just purely to get your name out there is just, you know, it's going to be a very long slog for many years. Whereas yeah, like if you can just say, okay, I'm going to stop working this job that has nothing to do with what I want to do, do a master's, not only am I getting networking opportunities with people that are in the industry i you know there's options to go to conferences there's options to meet people there's options to like discuss problem solving with a whole lot of other people that are you know bursaries maybe funding yeah so the thing is that like it's not it's not so much you getting a paper but you actually there's so much more sure you end with a paper 
but you're actually getting up a network. You're actually getting up a whole lot of, for all I know, you know, you could get offered a job straight after purely because I met a guy at a conference and he liked, you know, liked my vibe. So the thing is that the, the fact that I don't have a job now and I'm doing full-time studies is it gives me the freedom to explore any option now. I don't, I'm not tied to, oh, sorry, I can't meet you. I have to be at work or sorry, I can't work on this project this month because, you know, I'm busy with this work, you know, because obviously you're doing a disservice to your employer if you're not working eight hours a day, like they employ you and they pay you a salary. So if you go to work and you're actually just working on things that aren't company related, then not only are you stealing, but you're also just being an unethical person. And you're doing both yourself a disservice because you're stressing now about the work that you're not actually doing, but you're also, you know, stressing yourself out, you know, with the time requirements. So, yeah, I'm a firm believer of give yourself 100% or, you know, try, give it your best shot. And if it doesn't work, then, you know, at least I have an engineering degree to fall back on. You know, not many people can say that. So, yeah, I mean, look, I am a very privileged person that I could be able to save my like I said last year with the pandemic, you know, we had 50% pay cuts, but the company was gracious enough to pay back, do back pay. So with that and with pay cuts and then cutting down on expenses and stuff is pretty much the only reason I can afford to study now. Had, you know, had there not been pay cuts, I probably would be still working there in a completely different situation. But it was enough of a catalyst to say, oh, wow, you know, something has to, you know, I don't want to be doing this. And, you know, like now I have the chance. Brendan? I think, yeah, because you also um, have a regulatory side, I think, for you to be in your industry, there's definitely some sort of learning you have to do, right? Qualification. Yeah, so there, there is quite a, a long learning process. Uh, there's a lot of supervisory education that you have to do, culminating in essentially you've got your regulatory exams which gives you license to, to practice as just a basic financial advisor, nothing very fancy or complicated. And then from there, you've got a, a crossroads of you could either go the CFA or the CFP route, depending on qualifications, market demand, what you prefer, how much your practice has grown in that time. CFP does lend itself more to being a, an independent financial advisor, but then also... Before that, there's also other avenues that you can explore. You can go more into the heavy investment side, fund management, and uh, you know you can do the more the Gary V thing, angel investments, and, and looking for more risky risky things, which is something that's on the cards from from where I am now and looking forward to the future for for where I want to go. But just to to build on what Matt and Marcel said is just you know sort of considering the the carrot and the the stick approach to to the drive and of what's happening with engineers matt mentioned you know robotics is a, it's a developing industry it's not heavily developed and so obviously things like experience and qualifications are desired and if you're willing to to meet those criteria you know that's something that's going to pull you into the industry so sort of, obviously, I don't know Matt's full story, but looking at it, it's a, it's a mutually beneficial pull where Matt is interested in this and industry needs these kind of peoples. And, and so the opportunity presents itself. And I think the converse is true. That's, that's what I saw 
in in the industry of you know looking at something like power gen coal-fired power stations are at this stage of the game pretty antiquated they've got their place and they they might contribute to you know the the overall power bouquet of a country but there's the degree of increment of innovation and new things being applied isn't there because the demand isn't there no one wants to burn another or set up another coal-fired power plant they want to do a solar plant they want to do a nuclear plant they want to do hydro electro whatever it may be and and so that's like the the more stick side of it is that there isn't a demand for it and so what a traditional mechanical engineer might have had to use in in previous industry like for instance the power industry i mean we came out of our degrees pretty much being fully capable of doing a large portion of what's required to run a power plant or to to run other plants that i've i've had experience in whereas the new innovations they require new knowledge and new experience and new people applying their minds and the old school guys they're going to finish off their careers with the dying industry because that's what's needed but they're not going anywhere they're not leaving and creating new opportunities for for younger folk so yeah just just to sort of build on the conversation and what i've seen sort of going on here i think it's not only a case of you know, your ne- negative things you know, quality of life or underappreciation i think it's just a natural progression that we're all going to have to come up with our own new job titles so we've all heard that anecdote you know the job you're going to be working in 20 years doesn't exist right now and i think this is probably the the beginnings of seeing that in a more drastic effect that's right, so i think i agree with that especially that last part because you i think we've also mentioned a few things where a lot of us we really enjoying the spaces that we're in now but we still don't even know where it's going to lead to kacha on your side i think you actually quite unique in the sense because obviously i know your story but i think like matt was saying you know i think his difficulty was to say okay fine do i do things part-time or after hours obviously for quality of life or do i do something full-on but i think you are probably the one person that i know out of all of us which sort of did one thing on the side and then sort of also did the coding to get yourself to where you are right now i think obviously you did python at university but a lot of the story even the other discussion we had before was a lot of self you you taught you, you taught yourself a lot of coding through hackathons through kaggle through you know basically a lot of side projects yeah so with me i mean and it and it really helped me and the and the transition when i moved because so during during my varsity times i really got into the whole coding thing uh you know platforms like kaggle on a friday night and or or during the weekends just trying to upskill myself and when i joined the my current employer i mean the first couple of weeks they're like yo we have this computer that runs all our python scripts automated reports and everything and you know um with your python skills we think that you should look after it so i mean 2 years later i'm still looking after it but what i was grateful for and what i was not intimidated by is the fact that these all these scripts that doing so many they're running so many other processes it didn't intimidate me because of my knowledge but i still had to learn i still had to learn what i'm doing i i've been mean, python is a tool that you use to solve a problem so you need to understand what problem it's it's solving so for me that really helped me by really learning on the side and during my off times to really practice those 
those skills and practice my Python. And it really helped me in my job. I didn't know that it was going to help me in my job. It was something that actually worked out uh, beautifully. I mean, what I really had to learn on the job was, was SQL, but that I learned in like two weeks or something. It's not very hectic. As, <laughs> it's not very hectic. So, I mean, the other stuff besides the technical stuff, I think it was more the communication parts where I need to, you know, be, be more confident in talking with the business side of, of the job. Like in our space, we work a lot, we work a lot with product managers. So they have these products that they own and we just tell them, give them the data on, on how the products are performing. And then they will run campaigns and we work on running campaigns to try and see how these campaigns affect the performance. So it's understanding that. So understanding the requirements of product owners and they're going to find the data that speaks to their concerns. Yeah, so that was one of the, the biggest learning curve, but it was not hectic as, you know, people would understand that, you know, you're coming from a different industry, you're new here into this environment, this is how we work. So, I mean, I was slowly guided into it. On top of that, the, the, the business itself also helps us or tries to help us upskill. So we have these sessions or courses during, I mean, during working time. So there'll be some days where you're completely booked out on a course on scorecards or on different frameworks like FS9, for instance, in payments and all that stuff that they use in the bank. So yeah, so there's a lot, there's a lot of on the job training as well that the company facilitates. Like they literally have it. There's a lot of there's access to like your Udemy's and your LinkedIn learning. So if you feel like you want to upskill in and maybe hypothesis testing, maybe you forgot it from varsity or from statistics. I mean, they can go on LinkedIn or or Udemy to upskill this. So in terms of learning, the only thing that I, I needed to adjust to is the fast, fast paced nature of it all. I mean, where I come from at Postgre, it was very slow, very, very slow. So <laughs> you come into corporate and people move fast, fast paced and your mind. So you, you have to learn how to balance attending meetings and actually sitting down and doing the work. Because early on, the problem I had was I was sitting in meetings the whole day. It's three o'clock and you haven't started the work that <laughs> you said you'd do in the meeting. So you have to understand how to balance all of those things. But I mean, what I do think is still very important is that I'm thinking of going to study further, getting a master's. So I'm still also trying to figure out like what's what's next from here? What's the next step I take? I mean, that will guide my decision into what master's or what's, what master's degree I go into. I mean, I've learned a lot in the two years. I think I have a big picture now. But then you start asking yourself, what next? I mentioned data, data engineering. It's something that I've been looking to, towards as well. So do I go and do a master's in information science or, or something like that? Or do, or there's also the business part. Do I say, okay, do I go and do an MBA? That, that gives me the whole business feel and the, the holistic view of the business world. And how do I, yeah, so all that business knowledge there. Do I go and do an MBA for that? So that's where I'm at right now. And I believe, and I'm getting the conversations with Nat and, and what myself has been saying that, you know, the paper, especially if you're on expand, the paper also becomes a factor. So who do you, so it's, it's a consideration that it's there as well. Yeah, that's me. No, I think like there's no right or wrong answer, definitely. And I 
I, I understand why I met him. I saw saying that obviously pursuing a master's degree, I wouldn't say Marcel didn't have a choice, but you know, obviously with the job situation, he got forced into that in order to get jobs. I think um, for me personally, I feel like, I think I definitely put a lot more, not more, but I put a lot of value on experience, but I do understand that a piece of paper can limit you from getting that experience. Like uh, Matt says, he needs to get a master's degree in order to segue into a place where you can find experience but at the same time i think there are also some places where i guess there's a low barrier to entry depending on what you have done so still your degree did obviously make sense um, for me i work on a platform called service now and if you heard of salesforce the competition is basically service now it's either service now salesforce and sap used to be the thing back at the end of the day and um, funny that Matt was mentioning John Deere because one of the places we consult for is actually Echo, which is the biggest competitor. So John, uh, not John Deere, but Challenger Fence, basically anything not John Deere is us. The thing is that with their pictures and the stuff that they obviously advertise as a company, we obviously, I'm on the IT side, but I have seen a lot of these drones that you were speaking about because Echo also has their response to a lot of the tractors and stuff. They are drone technologies. And even in Zambia, there's a place called Future Farm. We didn't get to go there because of COVID, but we drove past there. And a lot of the newer technology that they're trying to experiment with in Africa and stuff like that, they bring it there. So that's actually quite cool. But anyway, moving back to our topic in terms of uh, learning curves and stuff like that. So for me, <sighs> Yeah, you obviously, a lot of you guys know me in terms of coding and stuff. I wasn't brilliant at coding. I did it for the subject. And I never, I always had a struggle if I didn't see the, the, the end game for a subject. Like I did it to pass it, I'll, I'll pass the subject. But if I saw what the, the end game was, it was a lot more easier for me to be interested in the subject and stuff like that. And coding just for me at the time, either it was lack of attention or maybe, um, the way the lecture presented the course and stuff like that. I just never felt like, okay, like it's going to be great. When I moved over into ServiceNow, now on the platform itself, it requires you to know a bit of JavaScript, a lot of HTML, CSS as well, because it's obviously a lot of front, front end facing, you know, components and making sure certain forms and workflows work a certain way and that you capture the right information and what you do with it afterwards to make the process run. So I think what helped in, I would say my, previous career was the fact that I had worked with a lot of contractors, a lot of uh, suppliers, especially at Fosco and at AB InBev in terms of the project space. What was very difficult for me, as I mentioned, was the fact that one, you had to, it wasn't just like, okay, cool, go code on, you know, Anaconda like you had for Python or go code on something else. There was an interface that you had to get to know. There's a navigation bar where you have to know what it is that you're typing, what things are called before you get into that space where you can start applying this code. So I think the beauty of coding spaces and stuff like that is that there's always information out there. So W3 Schools is my best friend now because if there's any point in time I want to find anything about either Python or a bit of JavaScript or what is the other one, React.js, like there is somewhere that I can find it. But I need to know what I'm doing first. And that's something that obviously Kash and I spoke about. The reason you find a lot of engineers that send coding spaces is the fact that you need to basically be able to write down what it is, the problem, what the problem is, how are you basically going to get to a solution. And once you know how that works, you can go find the code somewhere else. I've been lucky in that aspect to say that at least as, as, as people have mentioned, the industry itself in terms of 
coding and you know obviously most websites are built on phps but then javascript was a big thing so there's a lot of information out there so there per se yes i do have to have some sort of qualification so within service now itself i am qualified as a systems administrator i'm going to become a developer i'm working as a developer but i need to go write an exam and stuff so they are formalities put it that way but it's not enforced it's just obviously to help you progress and it's obviously to help you i guess if you do want to build your cv to say yes i am certified as one two three four on this platform but it wasn't a barrier to entry let's say like a a mad situation where for him he might need that as a barrier to entry to within his industry so i feel i've never thought about it that way but whoever mentioned it i think it was meant about the maturity of each industry i think that may determine how hard it is for you to transition into it and i feel like also obviously brendan as he mentioned yes he's got many roots but i have as well because i do have interest in finance as well just similar to brendan like you get to a point in life where you're like okay cool like i've got money i don't know what a provident fund is i don't know what i should be putting aside there what happens if i can't work and it was through meeting my financial advisor right now that i realized oh sure but like i do not know what i'm doing like, and that obviously made me a lot more interested and in. he also says himself that there are quite a few engineers that go into his industry but also he's got a lot of clients which are engineers and unfortunately because we are so gifted in mathematics and obviously analytical skills, we really feel that we can sort of manage our money ourselves. And I realized that it's definitely not true. You need to know someone who does it full time. And I think I really agree with Matt saying that, okay, fine, you can do things on the side or you can jump into doing things full time. I really agree with that to say that if you're going to make a transition into a new career, if you have the ability, obviously, as, as Matt has now to go do a master's, and he was fortunate, as he mentioned, you know, just the situation, the back pay and all that type of stuff. And like, I'm really happy for him. I think even most of us have probably even contemplated saying, do we need to go study a master's if we don't already have a master's? Do we need to go study, a, do a PhD, maybe in Marcel's case, or another type of master's, you know, to, to go into, if we had the opportunity to do that, um, even if we had the funding to do that, we, I'm sure some of us might have done that per se. But I think experience is important i think i really agree with matt saying that if you can do it full-time rather do it there's just so much that you not save but you just by doing it day to day that's like i i had points in time while i was doing engineering where i said well let me try refresh my coding because i thought okay fine this place is not innovative enough let me go learn python you know you get that motivation for one week and then you're like ah dips because life just happens you know you get on you get called out on a saturday night and a sunday night and then there goes your weekend of learning and then you're sleeping and recovering the whole week because you're doing engineering one thing and then obviously after work you're trying to do coding and never happened but then now when i'm doing it full-time i'm like is this the thing i was scared about oh like now that you're doing full-time one you get to see and touch and feel things a lot more. And also you're given the freedom to do that. And what another thing, sorry, it feels like I'm hijacking the, the discussion, but one of the other things that helped me transition us as well, transition into the field that I'm in is that the ServiceNow platform where we work on, they've got in different environments. So I can code in, let's say, in the development environment, and then I can go test things and I can have all the, the information from my live environment and you can go with people to say, well, try this, test that, put this in, run it and see how it works. And, you know, you're not breaking things. Where engineering, or let's say traditional engineering in the fields on a factory and a plant, you couldn't go do that because if you experiment in something, you're probably killing someone, you know, 
something's going to explode, something's going to crack, something's going to you know seize, and then you have to take the workshop or it's going to cost X amount of money. Whereas where I'm in, at now, obviously in the coding spaces, you can run a piece of code on any other piece of equipment or another environment, and then it's not the end of the world. You know, you feel like, okay, I can learn a lot quicker because I can make mistakes and I'm free to make these mistakes. And then by making those mistakes, I learn a lot faster. Where maybe Brendan can't really make mistakes with people's money and stuff like that. But, <laughs> you know, that also helped me transition, I guess, into another field and career, the opportunities to make mistakes and learn faster. Yeah, I think, yeah, I agree with you in terms of the, the experience. So for me, I was one of those people that was against going straight into postgrad. Because like I thought about it on, on my side, I'm like, yeah, I don't know what the industry is like. I don't know which way I can go. I mean, there's so many paths you can take. You know, you, you find that out after varsity that, oh, actually, I'm not meant to only work in this specific area or, you know, you're not in one bucket. So you can fit in many buckets, and as you can see with everyone here, that, you know, you're in different buckets. So I think experience is key, but then with the conversation of academics comes is, okay, you want to go to the next level. And like Matt, Matt decided that, okay, I want to transition into this space. Let me just do it now. Like, let me take the time out to do it now. I think, I mean, it also depends on, on where you sit to your, your state, the state of your affairs, I guess. And I mean, you're fortunate enough so that, that he could take, take that leap. Right. So it just becomes a question. I do agree that, you know, if you can just go for it 100%. Because for me, what I notice is ever since, okay, although I code a lot, if I'm not careful and spend some time, some extra time outside of, of work to try and learn something, I was like stagnate, but it's becoming difficult. Like previously I could do stuff on the side, but now it's becoming really difficult to do that. Um, the work you know you have to balance life you can't be working 24 7 and then studying 24 or working eight hours and then the rest of the day you're going to study i agree with the experience part but i think just to mention in short that if you want to if you are considering a postgraduate you should first think okay what problem do i want to solve or what am i really excited about and what is the quickest way i can get there and obviously, there's not one route. There's many routes that you can take. And if you get the opportunity to study, which brings you much quicker to this destination that you have in mind or the next part of, uh, of your trajectory of growth, then you should consider it. But if you are only doing a master's for the sake of, of, of doing master's or some degree just for the sake of having that, and you're not applying that to anything, I don't think it's very useful. No, so I think with with that, you, you, doing something needs to have a, a next goal, I think. No, but I think I agree with Katja saying that, like, you know, maybe, maybe for you, Marcel, you always knew what it was that you wanted to do. I think a lot of us, it's life that sort of, pushed us in a certain direction and that's why let's i'm saying for matt it's life that pushed him in that direction where he said well i'm really enjoying this and you know it's coming back to maybe what his dad did and stuff like that which gave him the opportunity and confidence to say boom okay fine this i'm not even risking money or anything like that i know what i want to do with my life i want to go do a boss in one two three four and that's what katja says you know 
he could have, he'd studied mechanical engineering, he switched over to industrial. And if he went straight into doing a master's, he would have probably done a master's in industrial, then maybe figured his path and stuff like that. But after doing a lot more of having, I guess, life experiences, same with Brendan, life experiences basically changed the direction of his life. And if he was maybe, if let's say it was the only way that she could do become a financial advisor or financial planner was to do a master's maybe he would have contemplated saying well okay fine i know i really want to do this that means boom let me go do my master's he might not have to because as he said he's with his industry his industry is quite mature so he doesn't have to go do a master's in order to segue into that but matt has to do that because of the industry that he's in but it's also that decision was very easy not easy he backs his decision because he knows that's what he wants to do and i think that's what kacha was saying that Jumping into a master's, you know, there are some people which finish doing undergrads, they do their honors or something like that. And I've heard of some people which just jump into doing an MBA, but like they've never worked in any industry. Like why? Yes, the university accepted you and you can pay, but what are you going to go do? And then you've never worked in industry. You know, what's, what's the point of that? Unless you're literally going to go lecture. It's going to be purely theoretical because you've got no industry, got no experience, you've got no industry experience, you know. I definitely agree with that saying, don't just jump into doing a master's unless you really, really, really sure like Marcel was obviously in this case. Uh, so, definitely. I, I, I totally, I totally agree. I'm, I'm also part of that side that says through experience, you'll probably have a better idea of what you want, especially like during your studies, you get unsure because you, you see so many directions that you can go into and that definitely makes someone unsure. And also a lot of the times uh, you're also bound to, to uh, a bursary which forces you to into a certain industry. So it's not always that you can decide, especially in that early start of uh, in your career, that, that you can do what you want. And you're not always, always sure what you want. So I'm definitely part of, uh, I'm, I definitely totally agree with you that experience does provide a better vision on what you want to achieve. But if you have the, if you have obtained that vision, if you have that idea of what you want, you can draw that mind map or the, the that, that path that you want to follow and whether whether a master's degree or any type of accreditation is needed to get there helps you to getting that there, there quicker then obviously uh, the, the, that would be the better thing to do but it obviously depending on where your situation is in life depending on how much experience you have what qualifications you already have Everyone needs to figure out themselves what path they need to to create for themselves to get to that next position. And I think that's where Matt, through his experience, he got this uh, new excitement for a new industry, and that and he saw this path that he wanted to to follow. And the same applies with Kaja where he fell in love with uh, programming and, and coding in Python and uh, where he made the switch. It's, it always starts with a vision and an excitement, which, and uh, after that, you make a decision to follow that road. And it's obviously, if you, like, for me, it was a case that I always wanted to go in the energy sector. And if you only have an undergraduate degree, then you're just applying to get a job, like uh, the, biggest can't be choosers and if you go into a master's then you're more specialized than then you hope the chances are better and i guess that's where where matt is in now where we if you do your master's your chances are better of getting into that industry that you really want to get into 
obviously it's not a given. I'm saying that out of experience that uh, after doing a master's in that sector, it uh, it was still hard to get any type of job, not mentioning the job that you really want to do. But it definitely improves you know, the chances. It's all about chances in life. How much can you you get that 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 needle into over the fifty percent that the chances are more likely that it will happen than not happening? At least yeah, that's I do I agree. I do agree with you, Marcel, that a lot of things are so as <laughs> chance. So I have a lot of friends that contact me like, yo, I want to switch, switch industries. I mean, I'm, I feel like I'm stagnating in, in the mines and stuff. And I'm like, how did you, they're like, how did you get there? And I'm like, okay, to be honest, <laughs> I was lucky in the sense that I sent you my application and I did the interview. They called me back and I got the job. But then what I try to add is like, okay, I mean, the skills that are lacking or the skills that is needed for this type of job, if you can find ways to, to, you know, to find ways to just upskill yourself in these things. In the case that you get called up for an interview, at least you can tell them that this is what you know, this is what, what you have and can give you a better, a better chance. But yeah, um, <laughs> luck is a, is a, is a big factor. Uh, it's a big factor. And to add on to also what, uh, the, the route that Brandon has taken. And I've met a lot of engineers that have gone through the CFA one, two, and three. And, um, you know, they, they've set their way in the financial, what you call it, in the financial industry. And I mean, I mean, there's so many doors that I think that Brandon can take. I mean, you can even become a consultant or, I mean, there's a lot that he can do. So, I mean, the world I think is pretty open. And when someone says that they don't know what to study and they have maths and science they put it in, I'm like, just go for engineering. Like, <laughs> you'll figure it out after that degree because at the end of the day, it still, it still allows you to go so many places across so many industries and the opportunities are endless. But then again, you have to put in the work still. So it doesn't mean that once you get an engineering degree that doors open for you automatically. No. But it allows you to to venture out. I mean, sometimes I still say, no, I'm an engineer. Although I'm working as a quantitative analyst, I'll say that I'm an engineer because I feel the weight that it can carry in certain conversations as well. So yeah, that's that's like my two cents that I wanted to add there. I think just as a parting question, maybe for everyone. Not that we're starting with uh, just I'm just trying to randomize where with the points at which we start and stuff. Do you feel that you will somehow get back into let's say more traditional engineering roles, or what do you feel um, after your experience and whatever it is your interests are? I think Matt mentioned it, but that was off the record. Obviously, what he wants to do. Uh, what do you feel that you would you will eventually transition to? Obviously, engineering has given you a platform to move into the space that you're in right now. But do you see that yourself, let's say, either moving back into it or moving? What is your, I guess, your ideal? Where would you feel that you would move eventually to? So it's a bit of a hard question to answer because on the one hand, I do feel like I'm equipped to be able to fall back on the mechanical engineering should I ever need to. But right now, where I am in in my career, I, I don't see it happening, for instance, in the next five years sort of my career horizon is is pretty much like a, a five-year mark of you know you, you need to 
put some time aside to make sure that you actually give this a, a genuine run at it of, of becoming a success of making sure that you sort yourself out. But that, that isn't to, you know, write it off entirely. A lot of what I use and the, the, the thoughts and stuff can be applied. So to say mechanic, not falling back on the engineering skills is difficult, but as a traditional engineer right now, no. I think probably not purely because of where, of where I'm going at the moment. I think I might start becoming more, I'm a start, I think I might start going along the more way of coding, the way of developing packages and stuff like that. Because the thing is that sensors and vehicles and stuff have been so well-defined recently, or, you know, we have companies like Clearpath Robotics that just make, give you a research platform that works perfectly. Now, what do you do with that? So I think there's a lot of application for sensors and stuff. So I'm pretty certain that in the next 20 to 30 years, I'll just be developing that and making sure systems work well and perform tasks. In terms of getting back into aero, no. In terms of getting back into defense, no, I'm not interested. In terms of getting back into, you know, doing the mechanical, I was never interested in plant, like any, like of that, like, pure mechanical engineering stuff. But then again, I mean, in four, four years ago, I didn't think I'd be doing this master's degree. So 10 years from now, I might be doing something completely different. I might be building tractors. I might actually not even be an engineer. I might be like a barista in a coffee shop or something. I don't know. But I think, I think the, the best thing is that like I'm doing this now and I'm going to dig this for the next couple of years. And yeah, it will give me enough of, it will give me enough joy and it will give me enough, I think, direction to do the next big thing, whether whatever that is. Uh, hopefully it's robotics and space, but <laughs> we'll see. I really have this urgency or had this urgency um, all my life that uh, I wanted to, to use all the knowledge that I have to solve problems whether that is in a traditional engineering role or, or supervisory role or advisory role, it, uh, I'm not sure that I really cannot say, but I, it is really, I really would enjoy applying my knowledge. And a part of my knowledge is definitely, uh, or most of my knowledge is engineering based. So somewhere in the engineering space, I, I would like, I'm, I'm, I'm still in the engineering space, uh, but I'm not doing the traditional engineering work. Being the traditional engineer, probably not if my ambitions are to apply my knowledge very broadly, but I'll definitely be working in the engineering space. That's, uh, that's what I think. Yeah. I think with the future also transition, transitioning more to, to software, and everything becoming more digital. I think a lot of the knowledge that we have will be transferred to digital assets. So as Matt mentioned, he he will learn a lot of things in with his studies, but then after that, he'll be creating software packages. And I think that's going to be for industries now. You, I think we are only seeing the start of of every all the knowledge that we have, we're trying to to put that in into code. So 
I think that's probably going to be the future where the traditional engineer will also know how to code and then apply all the knowledge they have into something that is worth something or that can do the job. If I had to make a prediction. For me, it's tricky because industrial engineering was one of those degrees where we could fit in a lot of industries. For me personally, I think I might end up in it purely because of the data data science type route that I've taken. So you start having production environments that rely heavily on data. So whether I go back as a as an industrial engineer or a data scientist, I think at some point also the, the lines could be blurred because an industrial engineer could also do the, the data work as well. And then, you know, I think it would become a, a matter of semantics of what do you classify as, who do you classify as an uh, industrial engineer or data scientist? So now if you look, for instance, a place like um, like Tesla, Tesla is a production environment, but they, they rely heavily on, on data. And you start seeing all the other commentary um, companies such as BMW, Mercedes-Benz, and all of that going through the more digital route and using using the cars as the cars give feedback on 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 people's performances on how people drive and everything. So in the future, I think yeah, it's it's I'll maybe end up in that environment as an engineer, or maybe as a data scientist or some some sort of data specialist. Yeah, I don't know that. I don't know, but yeah, it's, it's very possible for me that I could end up back in that in that industry. For me, it's a, a complicated one in the fact that it's like something. It's I think it's a blessing and a curse. Just the way I think grew up and the school that I went to, where we try to be good at not good but decent at a lot of things. So I've got a broad variety of interests. A broad like I've got a lot of fingers and a lot of pies. So for me, moving out of engineering, yes, definitely it was scary. But at the same time, it wasn't something where I think it didn't feel like a risk to me in that sort of sense. Do I see myself going back as an engineer? Probably not. Maybe as if I had to, I think maybe out of necessity, let's say job markets and something happens or some for some reason need more money. And then definitely I'm like, well, if there's money, obviously in project engineering or being an engineer, maybe. But in terms of pure interest and stuff like that, I've just not changed per se as a person. I think getting out of the engineering industry has helped me see a lot more things. Also, I guess for the last past 16 months, eight of the last 16 months, I haven't been in SA. So I have seen a lot of different things and had a lot of different experiences where I I never had before. And that's also changed the the way I see myself, the way I think, the way I approach different things. Short answer to say, will I find myself as an engineer again? Maybe, maybe not. More than likely by choice, no. What would I want to do? <laughs> That's also quite different. And I think it's something that will develop over time. Where we are, obviously, where we consult and we do a lot of projects. So obviously, yeah, I'm doing projects even at Fosco and maybe they've definitely did projects. So I don't think something to do with projects out of the realm of possibility for me. It's just that obviously I've gone from one project system where obviously things were done as shutdowns and just general projects to being in an agile environment. And that has pros and cons, things I like, things I don't like, things that come naturally to me, things which don't come naturally to me. I've been able to touch a wide variety of things. Um, a lot of the stuff that we sometimes work with is very 
um, user experience type work, you know, to make sure things just look nice. They're not necessarily, they don't necessarily need to be done, but it'll be nice to encourage people to use, let's say, a platform a lot more or use a certain type of process a lot more. So I, as part of work, have been, I won't say skilled, but learned what makes the difference between, you know, how people would design, I won't say per se an iPhone versus Android phone, because now, you know, it becomes on preference. A lot of things are preference based, but, you know, some of the influencing factors to what, towards what makes a person choose to go one route versus another route. And there's just too many things, I guess, that are possible. Maybe there's just too many possibilities for that sense, in, in that sense. Um, I don't think of myself as some sort of data scientist or data engineer, but we also sometimes work with a lot of data, transforming it or collecting data from, you know, Microsoft PowerShell and doing something that and getting users and then, you know, ensuring that they follow the right process and stuff like that. I do not think of myself as someone that's very skilled data, but obviously I do code and I develop as well. I do not know what that means. One thing I do have to say is that it was something I thought about in the car and uh, um, when I, we were driving between Rotterdam and here on my way back, that when you when you've been outside of SA, Marcel obviously can can also back me up on this one because he's in SA but he works outside of SA as well. Sometimes we feel and a very for a very long time before moving outside of SA, I felt like the grass was definitely greener in Europe, in America, in big places. But one thing that I have seen when you're not there as a tourist is that it's not, they deal with the same stuff like you do because everybody's a human being at the end of the day. They're just basic things that people are going to be able to do, certain things that get people annoyed, maybe different plat in different situations. Maybe the catalyst is not the same, but people behave and act the same way. They have the same frustrations. You know, anger is anger, hunger is hunger, lack of sleep is lack of sleep. Motivation is motivation across the board. I feel one thing that maybe South Africa doesn't do well is control the narrative and when i say that when i say that i mean when i have done consulting work for some other companies i realize that well the process is exactly the same here as an essay what makes them either seem more reputable and attract the right engineers the right people and stuff like that is their marketing what they put out in the world they sort of want to that's why i say they control the narrative to say well here's all the good stuff that we're doing and we'll take your eyes away from everything else that wouldn't let's say per se be very good for us as a company whereas in south africa it's either one we don't invest money in doing that as companies let's say within the engineering sector whatever you call it we either don't invest money in doing that or we as the africans have a very good bullshit radar to be like or even if you're telling us that we're not going to believe it so we less influenced or less um i guess um we were less willing to buy these oh, we are so great at one, two, three, four. So yeah, that's one of the things where I have thought, oh, the grass is green on the other side. And when you go and live in these places, so for the last three months, I've lived here in the Netherlands and I'm not doing it as a tourist. And the way they've even, let's say, for example, the way they've run the corona pandemic, I really feel SA has done better than the Netherlands in how they've managed the pandemic, even in terms of the second wave. We got our second wave later than them and we went out of the second wave earlier than them. You know, but, and it was one of the funny conversations I'm having with Marcel to say that if you look at the news here in the Netherlands, the way they talk about South Africa and the corona pandemic, you'd swear people are dropping like flies. 
you know, the way people are concerned to say, how's your family and stuff like that. You know, you guys are going through a second wave, you've got the South African strain. I was like, I'm not saying that people aren't dying and stuff like that, but I won't say it's not out of the norm or something like that, but it's not like, you know, people are dropping like flies or people are really dying the way the news portrays it. And that's what I'm saying. Things are worse off here and how they handle the corona pandemic, but the way they're controlling the narrative, the rest of the world, like everything's greater. And I feel the same thing within industries within CSA. I feel like we maybe either we don't give we don't give ourselves enough. Uh, what do you call it? We don't give ourselves uh, give ourselves enough credit. Maybe we don't control the narrative. Or as I said, maybe we've got a very big bullshit radar. But I find myself working with some of the things that I'm saying, a lot of front end facing stuff like that. I feel like maybe there is some sort of way to say I wouldn't want to call it marketing, but to say is there some sort of way that people can control the perception? Because I still think that. There's a lot of beauty within Africa. There's a lot of opportunities within Africa, but maybe we don't get the right investment, the right attention because we don't control the narrative. And is controlling the narrative a good thing or not? Because as I'm saying, yeah, it looks good, but things are just as bad as it is in SA. Do we need to say, well, it's a good thing that we know how it is, how it really is, or do we need to say, okay, fine, we need to start pushing the positive parts to try to get maybe investors in so that maybe an industry like let's say what matt wants to do with robotics and stuff becomes more mature which came first is it the good work for that comes first and then the marketing or do you need to do the marketing first and then the good work comes later i don't know but i still feel that that's something definitely as just not even south africa itself africa itself there's just so much that we do not get credit for or we don't put ourselves in the right positions to sort of market that it robs us from maybe yeah for robs a lot of talented people like you and i from the opportunities that we're seeking and maybe we go look for it elsewhere and the thing is that we are not welcomed elsewhere like matt is saying now because now he has to go do msc even though m engine msc like it's interchangeable we know it as that but then you get you know like i still remember i was looking at as an opportunity of maybe doing a master's in the netherlands and they were saying, well, okay, fine. We know that we are accredited by the Washington court, but the Dutch university was saying, well, you still have to do an English assessment because you don't know if you can write at academic level. And I'm like, wait, what do you mean? You know, so like those type of things where they feel like maybe if you were educated in South Africa, it's not good enough. You know, so those type of things, I feel like we need to control the narrative. And that's what I'm saying. I don't know how it is that I play a role in that, but it's something that has been bothering me a lot to say that I really don't feel either the South African education or just South Africans themselves get the credit that they should be getting. Africa itself doesn't get the credit that it should be getting. How I fit in that role in terms of changing that narrative, I do not know. But I think it's just a message to go out there to realize, or maybe just for people to understand that we are good, we're really good. Maybe we're just not as arrogant or maybe we're not as, not as, as a nation, maybe we don't really speak about some of the positive things that we have going for us. The fact that certain industries are really mature, a lot. The fact that there are a lot of there's a lot of work that maybe data scientists in Africa are doing. Maybe it gets lost in a lot of the noise of the country itself. And obviously, yes, as I mentioned, we don't want to speak about politics and government how they should be doing better. But maybe a lot of the good work that we are doing gets lost in the noise. How do we make sure that gets echoed out a lot better? Same thing with Marcel. Saying that he, I've spoken to him to say that yeah, he wants to come back to work in Africa or South Africa, but. He would love to do things, but he doesn't know how to do it. He doesn't know what to do because it doesn't feel like there's traction behind it. And I guess that's one of the challenges I would like to solve personally. How I do that, I do not know. But that's where, <laughs> through maybe a lot of skills and a lot of time, I would like to put a lot of attention. 
a lot of focusing. And maybe through discussions like this, people can start to either discuss or we get better sense of what it is that we maybe need to do as engineers per se to get the narrative out there to be like, yeah, we also skilled, we also equipped, we also educated, we can also do things. Yes, we go to other we go to other places maybe because opportunities are not there in South Africa, but maybe they actually are, but we don't know about it because people aren't telling us about it or people or the good information gets lost amongst the noise. But yeah, that's me in a few seconds or a few seconds, a few minutes of chat. <laughs> I actually like that uh, it's, a, it's a good point you raised uh, regarding the narrative. Because, I mean, I mean, we can complain about our government here in South Africa, but uh, <laughs> when you look at it, all the governments do the same thing. And it's just, I mean, the narrative. I mean, recently, the president, uh, the former president of France, Nicolas Sarkozy, was sentenced for corruption. <laughs> I mean, we, former presidents, the former president here is also on trial for corruption. So, I mean, it's the same thing, you know, but there were, I mean, one side blows the story out of proportion. And I think an industry as well, or I mean, even our universities, I mean, they produce top, top people. We still get told that, no, let's just test you one more time. Yeah. So I think, I think it's also believing in ourselves as well. Then I totally yeah, I totally agree with you, Kaja, on that uh, that point. I think South Africans, uh, the quality education gives also gives the opportunity for for the possibility of innovation. But I think the lack of confidence. I think uh, South Africa is in the very traditional sense where, okay, you, you after studying you first get experience and then and then then try something yourself and that's obviously a good good way of seeing it but then if you look the most innovative country in the world at the moment uh, america the most innovative ideas come from from those that just drop out of university and they say like they they are so obviously there are also a lot of uh, i think the percentage is only 10% of uh, those who succeed but that confidence that they have that they just can, can say okay let, listen let, let's try this and uh, there's only one in 10 chance that this will work but uh, we're going to try this and then they succeed obviously there's also things such as money and resources that uh, plays a major role and south africa is not in the best position to to have those resources for them i guess it, when you're talking about the narrative, it's, I think there needs to become a reputation that, that first you need to be able to, to prove that you can be an innovative country. And after that, investors will look more at you because what at the moment, at the moment most people just look at America and, and are looking for the big, next big thing. Yeah, I think uh, in terms of talent and, and showing it, it the big, a big part of it is just proving it and proving it you need to have confidence. I think South Africa is in a in a good space, being uh, being one of the most industrial, the most industrialized um, nations in uh, in Africa, and gives a major opportunity to for for the next growth on this continent. Because uh, the biggest growth was in Asia, and that's how China and India grew and is still growing. I think with Africa being on the verge of going on that curve, on that S curve, it provides the opportunity for South Africa to, to also grow with it. But yeah, 
I think people can can need to believe in themselves. And I do think that uh, the government uh, needs to play a better role. It does happen uh, across the world, but it does help a lot if the government is held accountable and that corruption and problems do not take place. But I think even um, in that sense... Although, although it takes place, uh, it, it should be lessened as, as much as possible. No, I think it's something that Emil actually brought across, which I never actually thought of, the fact that there is a sense of security in some maybe, let's say, first world nations where you said, yes, a lot of people feel like, okay, they can drop out and actually start a company because there's so many here in the Netherlands, there's just so many businesses. I'm just like, you can't have so many people that are entrepreneurs. Like, where is this money coming from? But if you look at it, and she also mentioned the fact that, oh, if you lose your job, obviously, like you can go take a risk, but if you lose your job, at least there's a stimulus check from the government. America also has that, right? They've obviously given them like $1,400 recently or something if you're unemployed. So people have like the worst case scenario is like, yeah, I'm going to get a 40, you know, $1,400. Or the same thing in the Netherlands, you're going to get 70% of whatever it was that you got paid or something like that. There is some sort of sense of security, which maybe might give them the confidence to say, well, if I do it, I'm not going to be sleeping under a bridge. You know, if I do decide to start a business or something like that, maybe, yes, you have confidence, but if anything goes wrong, then at least I know I can either, you know, go to go asleep and, you know, with uh, live with my parents or something like that. Maybe South Africa hasn't got those opportunities. And as we mentioned, yes, the government has their role to play in that to say, well, is there a way that they can help maybe people be a lot more innovative? Can you maybe jumpstart people's not businesses per se like you don't want to be giving people just money to say hey go do whatever it is that you need to but is there some sort of way that like i think the netherlands has something like a startup visa so if someone has a startup and they can justify why their business should do well and stuff like that the government finds them i don't know if that happens in africa specifically under startups but the thing is the startups are always going to be young guys you know engineers i guess like you like our, ourselves and stuff like that but it is definitely funded by the government and as 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 uh, Imola also mentioned the fact that yeah what's the worst that can happen i'm going to get i'm going to be unemployed the government's going to make sure that i get some sort of money i can buy at least i can rent someplace at least i'll be able to get food if my startup isn't launched and it's a failure and then especially if you've got a degree let's say or maybe if you don't have a degree whatever you call it there's always jobs you know i can still go get minimum wage years what like 10 euro which is what, 200 bucks an hour, you know, minimum wage means that at least I'll be able to have, I can go pack groceries and that's from someone packing groceries, they get 200 bucks an hour, 10 euro per hour to pack groceries at, 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 at the Yumbo, whatever you call it here, or at the checkers and stuff like that. So what's the worst case scenario? So people sometimes, maybe they do have the balls to do it because they know that at least, okay, fine, at least government is looking after me in that sense to say, well, I've tried something, it hasn't worked, I can go try something again and if it doesn't work, at least I'm not, you know, starving. Yeah, I think yeah. to, um, to <laughs> <laughs> just build on what Nana said. Yeah, I think the the idea of, of a stimulus is definitely something that I think would would work, and I think that is something that's preventing you know future growth because the opportunity, the leap I've made into this financial sector, there is no financial certainty. I mean, you know, I I I don't get a regular salary now it's commission and you know it depends on how many clients you see and all of that and the only way i was able to you know take that leap is to you know make sure that there's something put away to tide me over if there are any rough months and i can i would fully endorse you know 
having some sort of stimulus, having some sort of you know, basic, it sounds very um, PC, but, you know, to have some sort of basic care, you know, to make sure that, yes, you'll have a roof over your head and food on the table, like you say. I think if you, if you have that and you don't have to consider that kind of impact on your lifestyle, then, yeah, you're in a position to take the leap and to essentially try and make the world a better place in whatever way you have to contribute. Matt, anything to add to that? Or I know obviously you've gone through the whole self-funded route, which has obviously given you the comfort to go full-time into your master's. I do know a lot of people which maybe study part-time, as you mentioned, probably not the most efficient way because they just cannot afford to study full-time. You know, they've got families, they've got partners. Um, obviously a lot of people which if you're fortunate enough to have your parents which can fund your masters or your studies and stuff you know it's a it's a different situation but maybe yeah for you maybe it is a risk just to obviously stop working and do a master but maybe not as much as a risk because you had some money saved up obviously you put yourself in that situation and that's kudos to you you know at the end of the day but yeah giving you you know the confidence i guess to go pursue it and maybe even start your own type of business maybe afterwards and stuff like that do you feel that yeah i you, i guess at the end of the day do you feel that sometimes it's a confidence thing do you feel that um, maybe government can play a role i guess in helping people be a lot more ambitious to chase their goals and to innovate yeah i mean i don't know the man the thing with the stimulus checks and stuff i don't know if our economy can handle it purely because i think with COVID, we've hit like a substantial amount more unemployment. And even with the stimulus checks, I mean, guys were getting 300 bucks a month during COVID or whatever, they're still getting it. And I mean, like, what can you do with 300 bucks? So I think, I think there's definitely a place for it. I mean, I went the self-funded route, but it means that when I did lose, I lost my apartment, so I had to move back home with my mom because I didn't get another apartment. And then that did allow me to save so much of my, of my salary. So, I mean, like, I'm very fortunate in that route. And it did, did give me the confidence to attempt this. And the thing is, if I, didn't have, if I didn't have my previous job or at least my mom or my parents to help me out, I wouldn't have been able to secure the funding that I needed to secure. So I think, you know, we mustn't take privilege for granted. And I think countries, you know, without, you know, I think certain countries do believe that they are, you know, like they are more privileged. They just start off better. There's that video of people that say, this is what privilege looks like. And he's like, if you have two parents, step forward. If you have, you know, if you've attended school, if you ate three meals today, you know, like privilege isn't just financial privileges you know, whether or not you were raised or could be raised in a full rounded, safe environment. So I think that that all plays a role into why I ended up where I am now. And I'm very grateful, but I don't know if a government can, I think a government has a big role in that, but I've also seen from like shows in America that Oaks just abuse the stimulus checks completely. Like one guy just doesn't want to work. So he says he stays at home and protects his mom or he stays at home and he helps his mom. But I mean, his mom's still walking around and getting her own groceries and everything, but he's still getting $1,400 a month. So 
I think it's it has its pros and its cons. I think it definitely helps out people that definitely need it, but it's a system that can be abused. And I think a, con- a country needs to do the pros and cons and see if they can afford it to be abused. And to be honest, South Africa not having a stimulus thing is probably actually a good thing. I mean, look, I'm saying this from a privileged position. I mean, there will probably be hundreds, millions of people that disagree, but... I think just in terms of the actual economy of the country, it's probably going to be a tough thing for them to do. No, I think... I'm saying I, that they, sorry, I was just saying, I think when I mentioned the, you know, obviously in the Netherlands, I guess that's what I'm saying, the security comes from the fact that there's a stimulus check. I think definitely not everyone can do that. It's not a solution for everyone. Maybe it's a solution in the first world. But I think one thing that Marcel and Katja spoke about obviously is the confidence part and what I was speaking about in terms of how we can get ourselves mm. in for innovation, the confidence part, but confidence comes out of some sort of sense of security. Like you, that's what I'm saying. You as a personal person, your security came from the fact that you had parents to, you know, mom to yeah. rely on as well as money. For some of us, it might be like maybe Brendan, he's maybe more risk averse that he doesn't need much security to make the leap or faith, uh, maybe it could be maybe getting the master's, which encourages you to be secure that you can always fall back on whatever degree it is. Maybe that's also the same for us, maybe. Maybe what that's what it was that enabled us to jump to different careers, the fact that we had the security yes. of the fact that we had an uh, engineering degree from the University of Pretoria. That gave us the ability to say, well, I can jump and try something else. And if all else fails, I can always be an engineer again. In the end, it's all about having a safety net. Why does uh, someone jumping in the circus or doing those crazy tricks? They can do those. They can do that with confidence, maybe because of experience and and knowing that they have done it a lot of times. But in some of those tricks that they do, there's this big net at the bottom that like you, if you fall, you're not gonna die. You're just gonna fall. I think the difference between uh, first world countries and third world countries is that. First world countries have that layer called government that, that provides the, the safety net, uh, while in in third world countries like South Africa, the governments aren't there, like they are either poor or corrupt or both, where you need to rely solely on your closer government, which is your family or could be your family, family, friends, relatives. That's that's the big difference uh, between, I would say, if you compare South Africa to the Netherlands, yeah, and correlating that to confidence, I guess that the richest countries have the most confidence because they like you can, you know, you're not going to die. <laughs> I know that's a bit extreme, but uh, yeah, I think that's more the it's it's more realistic scene for South Africa than like in South Africa you don't have to look far to find hunger. In the Netherlands, like people there don't know hunger. I think it's not as a summary per se, but yeah, I think at the end of the day, maybe that's the reason why we have many engineers leaving traditional industries because we've got such a good safety net that it gives us the opportunity to chase something else. And I guess at the end of the day, if that doesn't work out, we always have our degrees to fall back on. So maybe there are, yes, problems within our industries and stuff like that, but maybe it gives us, we are confident with the fact that, yeah, I've got a safety net, at least at the end of that, I've got a degree which enables me to go venture out and try other things. And if that doesn't work, I can go find myself, you know, an engineering job at the end of the day. Yeah, I think it's more the fact that we see there's more value in other sectors and segments that we pursue those segments and sectors. There's definitely a balance, yeah. 
Yeah, and I think uh, in general it was a good discussion tonight because we were very bored. I, I liked uh, to I liked the idea of uh, having a conversation with a lot of the guys that didn't study the same but ended up in different industries. So it was quite cool.